Hello fellow history nerds and welcome to the second episode of the Bold Historian Podcast. This episode will follow William on his journey through southern England from Hastings to just north of London and to the conspiracy that sought to end his reign in 1067. Don't forget to go to my Facebook page and give the page a like to keep up to date with my history articles. Now join me as we journey through this chapter of the world story. Following the Battle of Hastings, William was in a strong position. His main rival, Harold, was dead, along with Harold's brothers, Leofwine and Gerth. The nearest William had to a rival was Edgar Atheling. Following the battle, William moved towards London by way of Dover, causing chaos as he went, with the intention of reminding England of his strong position and showing the remaining Anglo-Saxon nobles that he intended to be crowned as King of the English. So far, William only held two towns and those being Pevensey and Hastings. The rest of England had yet to be subjugated. So William stayed in Hastings, awaiting a formal surrender, which did not arrive. So with no such surrender forthcoming, he decided to march inland and take the initiative. First, he inflicted a slaughter upon the town of Romsey, and William of Potier states he inflicted such punishment as he thought fit for the slaughter of his men, who landed there by mistake. So a few of William's men landed at Romsey instead of Pevensey. Being only a few, they were slaughtered by the town's militia. Dover seemed to be impregnable due to its defensive fortifications on a rocky headland. However, it surrendered without a fight. Obviously, it appears William's reputation preceded him. It is thought William remained in Dover for a week for one of two reasons. One, to strengthen the existing defences, which may be the origin of Dover Castle and be to await reinforcements from across the channel. At Dover, William's army fell victim to dysentery due to drinking water, which is unreliable in the medieval era, and because they ate freshly killed meat. And this reminds us that William's army was still living off the land. Foraging and pillaging was essential for them to survive. William also fell victim to illness, but decided his army must carry on towards London. A Norman garrison was left at Dover. The next town on William's list was Canterbury, which surrendered to the Normans, as many others did. At this point, William would have known of the election of Edgar Atheling as the King of the English. As we learnt in the previous episode, Edgar was the son of Edward the Exile, who was the nephew and chosen successor of Edward the Confessor. But as we know, Edward the Exile died in 1057. So Edgar Atheling was the last Anglo-Saxon King of the English, a bleat being uncrowned. Upon hearing this news, and due to the close proximity of London, William sent an advance party to the walls of London. The walled city of London sat on the north bank of the Thames. A party of Anglo-Saxon warriors conducted a sortie out of the walls, crossing London Bridge to reach the Normans on the south bank. This sortie was unsuccessful and the Anglo-Saxons retreated back inside the walls of London. However, there was no surrender. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle states that William decided against an assault or siege of London. What he decided upon was to sow destruction upon the counties of Hampshire, Sussex, Kent, Middlesex and Hertfordshire. And to quote from John of Worcester, William did not cease from burning townships and slaying men. Mark Morris, in his book The Norman Conquest, states that John of Worcester's account says William and his army harried into Hampshire before heading north into Berkshire and then Oxfordshire before stopping at Waddingford. This devastating tactic had been used before by William in campaigns in Normandy. Wallingford offered a suitable place to cross the River Thames. The Doomsday Book also states this is a place where the housecarls lived. 
and as we know from the previous episode, the housecarls were elite troops and bodyguards of the English kings. So this was an important military target, and William's army encamped here for a few days, and this could also be the origins of the town's castle. Here at Wallingford, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stigand, came to pay homage to William, a significant step in William's campaign to become king. After this, London still refused to surrender and accept William as king. And so continued William's devastating march into Buckinghamshire and Hertfordshire, the route encircled London to the north. The Normans then stopped at Berkhamstead, and yet another fortification was built here. And this fortification was possibly a Mott and Bailey. A Mott and Bailey is a primitive fortification that consisted of a wooden or stone keep that sat on top of a mound, and this was known as the Mott, and a Bailey, which was a walled courtyard that sat at the foot of the mound. At this point, London was leaning towards surrender, and this must have been for two reasons. One, the devastation caused by William and his army in the counties surrounding London was beginning to have a negative impact on the city's morale. And two, the brothers Edwin and Morka, who were the earls of Mercia and Northumbria, had turned around and marched their army north, away from the Normans. So this was the last army that could offer any resistance against the Normans, and they chose to march north. So we can see why London decided to surrender. London must have felt isolated and desperate, knowing that there was no army willing to oppose the Norman invaders. And so the magnates and bishops of London that supported Edgar Atheling decided the best course of action was to journey to Berkhamstead and submit to William. Joining them was the uncrowned King Edgar. According to the D Chronicle of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, hostages were provided to William and he promised them that he would be a gracious lord. At this point, it could be said William was now King of the English. It is important to note that in Anglo-Saxon England, it was more than enough to be chosen as king. A coronation was the confirmation of who had been elected as monarch. Edgar had been proclaimed as king following the Battle of Hastings, and he had even given his consent to the monks of Peterborough in their chosen successor as abbot. But to the Normans, a man was not king until he was crowned. Therefore, they did not view Edgar as the king of the English. Following London's submission, both English and Normans urged William to be crowned as king of the English, so as to avoid England being left in limbo. This was the first change the Normans made in Anglo-Saxon England. William decided to wait to be coronated. He wanted his wife to journey from Normandy to be crowned alongside him as queen. William of Poitiers, a Norman-French chaplain for William the Conqueror, and also his chronicler, states William did not want to rush into being crowned, and there were a number of reasons put forward for doing so. The situation in England was still not stable, and William wanted to get the country under his control. And second of all, according to William of Poitiers, the Norman Duke did not want to seem into rushing into being crowned. Following a round of discussions with his magnates, William decided to go ahead with the coronation and be crowned as King of the English. The reasoning behind this was that once his reign was officially cemented, there may be less rebels to deal with in the future. And so, some of William's men were sent ahead to London to make preparations. But still, there was resistance in London. The advanced party of Normans built a fort in the city so as to defend themselves. The tense atmosphere lingered in the city up until the day of the coronation, which took place on Christmas Day 1066, 50 weeks after Harold Gobinson was crowned as King of the English. For the coronation, a number of armed Normans were stationed outside Westminster Abbey. Both English and Normans were in attendance inside the Abbey to witness this historic coronation. 
The order of service likely followed the conventional Anglo-Saxon tradition. The Archbishop of York, Eldred, conducted the service, and the new king affirmed to defend the church and be a just ruler for all. Towards the end of the service, the question was put to those in attendance if they accepted William as king. First, it was asked in English and then French. Of course, the audience shouted their agreement. Unfortunately, the Norman guards outside Westminster Abbey took this as a last-ditch attempt by the English to rebel, and it is said that Normans set nearby houses on fire. There is disagreement as to whether the burning and looting by the Normans was caused by the shouts from within the Abbey, or whether this was caused by trouble outside. It was not an auspicious start to William's reign. William decided it would be best if he did not stay in London, and would return once his fortress had been built, and this fortress would become the Tower of London. Following William's coronation, he rewarded his supporters. Most of the wealth and material goods that William dispersed came from the Royal Treasury at Winchester, and from the riches that were plundered from English churches during the ravaging of the southern counties. William sent the majority of the riches to continental churches, which had prayed for his victory. And yet more riches were sent to Pope Alexander, including Harold's banner, the Earls of Mercia and Northumbria came to submit to William, and these were the last two powerful nobles to offer their fealty to William. There is conflicting evidence as to how William treated the Anglo-Saxon nobles and other landowners. William of Poitiers suggests King William acted justly by freely granting them his favour and restored all their possessions and treated them with great honour. In contrast, the E version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle suggests William, rather than give them back their lands free of charge, made the decision to exact a huge fee in order for the Anglo-Saxon nobles to regain their lands. And according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the nobles had to give hostages to William as a promise not to rebel. So the Anglo-Saxon nobles redeemed their lands from him. William took possession of large swathes of land that used to belong to the slain of Hastings, including Harold and his brothers. And as we found out in the previous episode, Harold himself held lands in Wessex and Herefordshire, his brother Leofwine was Earl of Kent, and his other brother Gerth was Earl of East Anglia. William gave Kent to his brother Odo, who became the Earl of Kent, and part of the gift to Odo was Dover Castle. William also bestowed upon his close friend and counsellor, another William, called William Fitz Osborne, lands in the Isle of Wight and Hampshire, including building a castle for him in Winchester and Fitzoburn became Earl of Wessex and Earl of Hereford, which belonged to the former king, Harold. As such, this shows how important William Fitzosborne was to the Conqueror, and Carisbrook Castle on the Isle of Wight became Fitzosborne's chief residence. In 1067, William returned to Normandy for the first time since setting sail in September 1066. William left Oddo and Fitzosborne as regents of England, and they were tasked with keeping the peace and running the country in William the Conqueror's absence. Substantial numbers of soldiers were in place to garrison the freshly subjugated English. William decided it would be best if he did not stay in London and would return once his fortress had been built, and this fortress would become the Tower of London. And travelling with William to Normandy were some of the most important and influential men in England, which included the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stigand, and the Earls of Mercia and Northumbria, the decision to take these three men was to lessen the chance of any possible rebellion in William's absence. So William set sail for Normandy from Pevensey, a most suitable place to depart from. And when in Normandy, William rubbed shoulders with important nobles from outside of Normandy, 
which is not surprising that he was now a king. Orderic Vitalis states that whilst William was in Normandy, the local lords he had given lands and titles to in England were abusing their position as lords. And these lords were mainly Normans who had served William in the campaign. As regents, Otto and William Fitz Osborne seemed to lack the will to keep the newly ennobled Norman lords in check. And these new lords were holed up in their castles, a bastion of defence. The Norman Motts and Baileys, which evolved into castles, had two purposes in England. One, as mentioned, as a mode of defence, a base with which to sally forth against any rebels. And two, as a mode of control over the local population, and essentially the castles became objects of oppression. As big imposing fortresses, they dwarfed all surrounding buildings except cathedrals and the biggest churches. So in medieval Europe, there were two main pillars of authority, being the church, the Christian church, and the secular ruler of state. Settlements sprang up in the vicinity of castles where there was no settlement before. People were aware the occupants of all the castles needed provisions, and so people dutifully provided these as a way to make money. So Normans established new fortifications at Pevensey, Hastings, London, Dover and Winchester. The Great Hall of Winchester, which still stands, was an addition to Winchester Castle, and it was built on the orders of Henry III, with construction lasting between 1222 and 1235. It is thought that London, Dover and Pevensey weren't Motts and Bailey castles, but were actually built with stone. Before 1066, there were few castles in England. The ones that were built were done so by French advisors of Edward the Confessor, and they were built on the borders of the Welsh kingdoms, so as to keep the Welsh at bay. In 1067, when King William was in Normandy, two uprisings occurred in England against Norman rule. Edric the Wild, an Anglo-Saxon thane, ravaged Herefordshire, fighting against the Norman yoke. He was able to inflict significant casualties on the Normans, and Edric aligned himself with two Welsh kings, Blethyn and Rhualyn, in his campaign throughout Herefordshire. At the same time, a more serious revolt took place in Kent. The men of Kent, already in rebellion, sent an offer of alliance to Eustace, Count of Boulogne. Eustace had fought with William at Hastings, but had recently fallen out with the king. So he accepted the offer and grouped together a small invasion force and sailed across the Straits of Dover and together with his English allies besieged Dover Castle. Even though Oddo, who was Earl of Kent, and Hugh de Montfort, the castle's commander, were just north of London at the same time, the Norman troops in the castle sallied out and successfully lifted the siege, thereby scattering the English and the forces of Count Eustace. Fortunately for Eustace, he knew the lay of the land and was able to get back to a ship and sail back to Boulogne. However, most of his men were chased towards the cliffs and they fell to their death. There was also trouble up north in Marcus Eldon of Northumbria. Before departing England in 1067, William decided to appoint Copsig, an Anglo-Saxon thane from Yorkshire, to become Earl of the very northern part of Northumbria. Copsig supported William, and this shows that not all Anglo-Saxon nobles rebelled against William, and this appointment infuriated Oswulf. Oswulf was the nephew of Gospatric, and Gospatric was in charge of Northumbria from the River Tyne upwards before 1065. And in 1065, Gospatric was murdered, which sparked the rebellion that ousted Tostig as Earl of Northumbria. And so Oswulf ambushed Copsig and cut off his head. And not long after, Oswulf himself was killed by a brigand, being run through by a lance. As we can see, England was not fully subdued and was restless. 
In the last few weeks of 1067, reports of a conspiracy filtered through to William. Alarmed by this news, William rushed back to England, sailing from Dieppe to Wintersea overnight. And William headed straight for London, where he celebrated Christmas. And there, William offered the kiss of peace to the English nobles. But he also offered advice to his Norman nobles to be vigilant of English plotters. And William received news of the plot. It is thought the English plot would take place on Ash Wednesday in 1068. The plan is said to involve the slaughter of Normans in England whilst they walked barefoot to church on that day. In the new year, more intelligence came through to William. It was centred upon the city of Exeter in southwest England. And upon hearing of this news, William sent a message to the city to demand fealty. And when Exeter refused, William decided to march upon the city. Thank you for joining me on this chapter of the world story. As always, please send me an email to theboldhistorian at gmail.com if yourself or a relative or a friend who is hard of hearing or deaf would like a transcript of the podcast. And let's not forget, history belongs to all of us. And join me on the next episode as we uncover the identity of the people behind the plot. Goodbye.